On August 17, 2022, the Food and Drug Administration released its final rule establishing the regulatory category for over-the-counter hearing aids. Here with me today is Dr. David Akbari to discuss the tenets of the final ruling. David, welcome back to This Week in Hearing. It's great to be with you. So, David, before we dive into this finalized OTC framework, for our audience, would you mind, again, just introducing yourself? Sure. So my name is David Ekbari, and I'm a senior medical science, clinical and regulatory affairs liaison at Intracon Corporation. And my background in a lot of this stuff, beyond my education and experiences, I've been involved in what is now called OTC hearing aids for probably about seven years, since 2015, 2016 or so, um, at the earliest stages of some of what we previously called direct-to-consumer. And I've worked on many of the products uh, that people probably recognize in the market. So I'm sort of in a situation where um, I'm qualified to talk about this. Well, and, and David, you also serve on, on some uh, ANSI uh, standard committees as well, right? Yes, that's right. So the standard for prescription hearing aids, so this is called the ANSI ASA S322, which is the standard for measurement of quality control on hearing aids. I happen to be the current chairperson uh, for that working group, which is the ANSI ASA S3 working group 48. Okay, so uh, so you're you're uh, you're quite well versed in in the conversation that's going to take place today. But before we dive into that, we got to go back a little bit just so that uh, we can get everybody up to speed. So, OTC legislation, as you pointed out, has been around for about seven years. And what prompted the early stages before this final ruling? If you could just walk us through that, please. Sure. So in Obama's former President Obama's second term. Um, he commissioned some research from the President's Councils of Advisors in Science and Technology and the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine. And they each issued reports uh, discussing sort of the market, the addressable market, uh, capacity needs, and the current landscape of audiology and the service delivery models. And essentially what they found is that there's low adoption from accessibility and affordability issues in hearing aids more generally. And that was at the 2015-2016 audiology provision at that time. And what they saw was, which I think is really important, is that even if you had every single audiologist out there dispensing hearing aids full time, you would still never even come close to the capacity need that would happen. And it's, it's sort of become part of uh, the baby boomer generation. There's this big wave of people uh, coming of age to be about you know 65 to 67 sort of retirement age who are really in need of these services. But then if you cross-reference that with the number of audiologists and, and hearing aid dispensers actually too, you, you never even come close. And so it really is, it, it prompted the need for radical reimagining of what we could do as far as servicing the need of un or underserved Americans. Yeah. And, and so we have these, 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 the PCAST, the NASM report that then led to this uh, FDA reauthorization act, which then the government said, okay, we're going to now establish this thing called OTC hearing aids. So what is OTC hearing aids just in a general sense? Yeah, so the, the FDA Reauthorization Act of 2017, sometimes called FDARA, um, defined the need for creating a category of OTC hearing aids. And OTC, of course, stands for over-the-counter. And so you might think of it as analogous to a prescription drug. 
that now becomes over the counter, something like an NSAID pain reliever or something, where the idea is you're able to sell a hearing aid previously available only through a prescription um, over the counter without the involvement of a licensed professional. And what they did in the Fedara is they defined the need for OTC, but they didn't specify the detail. They sort of kicked that can down the road and directed the FDA to do that. Yeah. So the, the reason that this is really important is because it gives an important on-ramp for best practices audiology care, in my opinion. So you have something where, much like in the world of physicians, like the best practice dictates that you don't just give somebody uh, opiates for pain treatment, that you actually have to have follow-up care and aftercare as part of a holistic treatment method. I really see OTC hearing aids as similar to that insofar as it's not really just about the device. You know, people oftentimes think about it like that, where it's just you're selling a product on a peg. And realistically, in this, to get the need of Fedara correctly um, addressed, in my view, it really will depend on the on-ramp and the availability of what sometimes is called the ecosystem of care. So follow-up care, treatment, support, service delivery, and of course, more than audiologists are able to do that. You know, we talk about Best Buy uh, with their blue shirt service professionals, not licensed professionals. But in my opinion, audiologists are absolutely the most qualified and best able to service the needs of people who are experimenting with OTC hearing aids. And I really see audiologists as the best premium option for people to go from the purchase and, and experience of OTC hearing aids to that best practices audiology treatment care. And in my opinion, it'll lead to more independence, more autonomy for audiology, and it really will help grow the profession in terms of uh, being a doctoring profession. So I, I see OTC as a huge opportunity, not just for the consumer, but also for the provider. Yeah, and, and just to add on to your point here, you know, the 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 next component I think that's really going to have to uh, be developed is is health literacy. You want to talk a little bit about how health literacy will help us expand the the involvement of other individuals through the help of the audiologist to meet the needs of the the larger growing population. Yeah, so health literacy is going to be a really important. Um, auxiliary effect of the OTC final rule. And what's really interesting about it is, you know, many of the comments, if you read the final rule, we're talking about the need for the FDA to create literature, to create some sort of a common way to interpret hearing aids. But actually what the FDA said is, well, we're going to require this specific things in the labeling, and then consumers will have to themselves decide in comparison shop. So in other words, that indirectly says that the consumers have to onboard all of this mental information. They are going to have to start to learn about what is hearing loss and how, how is my experience mapped to the potential treatment pathways. And it's a really interesting way to go about improving the health literacy outcome. There, of course, will be a learning curve to that, but it's really an opportunity, in my opinion, as well for audiologists to promote and disseminate high quality educational information that really addresses that health literacy need. And in my opinion, there's no better suited profession than audiology to lead that. No, and I 100% agree with you. I, I think it's gonna be critical. And I think it's, uh, as you pointed out, a huge opportunity. And uh, um, you know, it, it's gonna take a little time, but uh, uh, the future is here. Future is here. Yeah. So. David, before, as we're diving into this, this legislative framework, right, we should probably preempt the audience to know that there's a, a consumer side to this and there's a prescriptive side. And we'll talk about the consumer side first. 
So I'm going to turn it over to you, and if you'll just dive into the OTC category, what it means for consumers, uh, and, and uh, you know, we can start uh, diving a little bit into the weeds here about, uh, you know, what it means for the product, and then we'll eventually talk about some of these service delivery options that are available as well. Sure. So there's definitely a lot to unpack here as far as what it means, um, as we just referred to health literacy, how do we get those numbers and what does that really mean? And that's where you get into the standards themselves. So there are two really important standards that the FDA calls out in terms of the electroacoustic performance of hearing aids. One of them is accredited by ANSI and it's promulgated by the Consumer Technology Association and it's called ANSI CTA 2051, which is a, a standard that is what we might call criterion referenced as opposed to norm referenced insofar as that there are specific performance criteria you have to meet in order to claim compliance with that standard. Uh, the other one is very familiar, I think, to a lot of audiologists manufacturers out there, which is accredited by ANSI and it's promulgated by the Acoustical Society of America and it's called S322. And it's different in scope and intent. So these standards are both different in scope and intent. And so unlike ANSI CTA 2051, ANSI ASA S322 is actually a measure for quality control of the hearing aid. And what that means is that the manufacturer sets the limit of the pass-fail criterion, and you, there are simply tolerances that come from that defined in the standard. So in the technical parlance, what we say in the manufacturing side is it sometimes is called an operational qualification. In other words, mm -hmm. you build a bunch of hearing aids and then you measure a statistical distribution and set your tolerance limits from actual measured parts, if you will. And so that's how you start. It's sort of a reactive way to uh, define tolerance limits around the performance of hearing aids. Where ANSI CTA is different is they just stay straight up. You have to meet no greater than 5% input or output distortion in these specific circumstances. And it's actually a very hard standard to meet. In my opinion, it's, it's harder to claim compliance with ANSI CTA 2051 in some ways than it is ANSI ASAS 322, precisely because there, there's no flexibility in terms of what you're allowed to, uh, to get away with as far as your measurement. You have to meet uh, those requirements to claim compliance. Yeah, and I think that's an important point to make is, you know, the, the thought is, is that some of these OTC devices will be clunky as they come onto the market, but that's been preempted through these uh, various standards in saying that we're going to be really, really strict in what comes onto the market because our number one goal is consumer protection. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And perhaps one of the, the most interesting things that came out of the OTC legislation is the idea of latency. So, you know, previously people were thinking, oh, well, does that mean latency to the wireless streaming or maybe the phone use case or whatever? It's really latency of the internal hearing aid processor. And what that really means is within the context of the OTC category, in my opinion, what's gonna make that difficult, if, and they, they say it's 15 milliseconds, one five, 15 milliseconds. Um, what's interesting about that is when you do what's called full duplex audio, in other words, you're, you're getting audio in and you're producing audio out at the same time on a computer, that processing delay is tends to be pretty long. When you like imagine having an, uh, an iPhone app, for example, and you call it a hearing aid. You are allowed to do that, of course, through the final rule, but you have to meet these very strict performance standards. And it's unlikely, in my opinion, with current generation iPhone or Android technology that you could actually meet that. I, I don't think 
um, you, you would be able to meet that unless you had like a custom kernel or something. In other words, a, a layer between the hardware and the operating system that's that's custom and very low latency in order to do that. And the reason for that is are things like the temporal fine structure continuum, we might call it, where it's the psychoacoustic idea that you have uh, when do you start to perceive two sounds in time as different events? So for example, that 15 milliseconds, if you have like say two transient signals that are within 15 milliseconds of each other or less, it tends to sound like more like a resonant comb filter. Whereas when you start to get in my, and usually what I used, and I, I learned this in the music industry, about 24 milliseconds is for the, the kind of the worst case scenario when you start to perceive things as two events. So it's like, da -da, you know, like you start to hear it as like a, a transient signal that starts to kind of clearly become two events. Now, some people are very sensitive at that. I mean, some people have detection thresholds that are much lower, but, it, you know, 15 milliseconds for internal hearing aid processing uh, is actually quite good in terms of being able to uh, analyze, interpret, synthesize in the environment. I mean, that's very, very fast as far as the hearing aid goes, and it does limit uh, the potential for sort of cheap things to end up on the market because it's a very strict standard is ANSI CTA 2051. And that's just one example. Yeah. And, and I'll just add this, uh, you know, if we think about uh, a communication, right, you always are looking at uh, the, the, the talker, if I'm the listener and uh, you would have the McGurk effect in that the person's mouth would be moving and the signal would be coming in a little bit later on. So uh, to bring it back to kind of a speech perception or, or you know, back to your uh, graduate level courses, um, it's it's there to uh, ensure that the communication process is a continuum and it's not two different things where uh, the individual is now struggling to understand what's going on in that in that uh, in that framework. Sure. And, and you mentioned McGurk. I mean, it's also, you know, from the speech science pedagogy, like the, the voice onset time, things yep. like the, the format processing and so on. I mean, it's, yep. if you're able to process that such a fine temporal resolution, you're going to have better outcomes because it directly relates to speech perception. But what's interesting is the ANSI CTA standard also in their declaration is supposed to accommodate more than speech. It's supposed to be music and all these other things. And so that's a really interesting effect. And it's very new, in my opinion, for audiology to start thinking more holistically um, beyond sort of the speech stimuli that there's a ton of pedagogy around. Yeah. So so now let's turn our attention to distortion, right? We know that distortion is a big factor because it introduces uh, noise, right? And signal-to-noise ratio is one of the biggest issues that our listeners face. So there's a, there's a, there's a component to this uh, uh, new framework. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So what's really interesting about the, the distortion stuff is in ANSI CTA 2051, they require both input and output distortion. So what's really interesting about that is if you consider the device having a scalable dynamic range coming out of it, um, it what they require, just in summary, is you have to present 100 dB SPL into the hearing aid, and you have to measure no greater than 5% total harmonic distortion which is actually a really hard test. In fact, a lot of audiology equipment doesn't even go that loud. If you think of the, and I won't name names, but the contemporary examples. Uh, it's a little different than ANSI S322. And so far it's a little bit harder because you're measuring both on the input and the output, and you have a hard criteria of 5% max. Whereas for ANSI ASA S322, for example, it's whatever the manufacturer says plus 3%. So if you said as a manufacturer, you, you permit 5%, you actually can measure up to 8% in the clinic in your test box and still be within the spec. So it's it's a pretty strict standard um, as far as everything goes with distortion. Uh, really specifically, I think this one, because there are many types of distortion, is, is focused on harmonic distortion. Um, 
with the idea that it's it's referencing sound quality. Yeah, yeah. So again, the stringency is still there. And then the other thing that I found really, really interesting in the in the new ruling uh, that is not necessarily on prescriptive devices is volume control. These new devices are required to have some sort of a volume control. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. It's it's really interesting because it it seems the FDA responded to a comment. They said, well, we think a volume control should be required on everything. And and previously, if, if we remember from the proposed rule, they sort of had this difference in intent. If you had a volume control, you could do one thing. If you didn't, you could do another. Well, now they change in the final rule. It says everybody's got to have volume control. What what I found interesting is in your, your viewership here, our viewership, we look at comment 87 from the final rule. And essentially what it says is that does not have to be a physical volume control which when we start to talk about generally the OTC rule allowing more innovation in this space, the FDA sort of agrees with that. And they're saying that it could be a remote control or a mobile device. And their intent is to allow design flexibility for manufacturers to develop and market smaller hearing aids. So the idea is, as the FDA points out, that there are potentially dexterity issues and cosmetic issues with the idea of reaching up and, and adjusting something. Um, they feel it would be more discreet to have options and flexibility in this space, even though they're requiring a user adjustable volume control. So it can be an application, not necessarily physical, but the requirement is that it has to be user adjustable. Yeah, yeah. I find all of this absolutely fascinating. And then, you know, we've got the device, then the device has a pre-market component to it as well for the over-the-counter. And so, you know, can you talk a little bit about the difference between self-fitting and customization, which is on page 19 of, of the uh, final ruling? Yeah, sure. So it, it's really interesting that FDA sort of came up with this idea, you know, and, and it starts with the idea, well, what is even a fitting? Like, what is fitting at all? And so, you know, because a lot of people, when they hear the word, they think physical fit. They don't, they're not thinking about audio fit like we tend to in the industry. But the FDA very clearly defines uh, self-fitting and customization as distinct. So customization is the broad term and self-fitting is the more specific. So it's the idea of like... Um, uh, a rhombus, a uh, square is a rhombus, but not all rhombi are squares kind of idea. So like, <laughs> so uh, fitting is the customization process, but uh, not all are, yeah, fitting is a customization process that instills in the device frequency dependent settings for the specific user. So that's the FDA's definition in this. And so what they're saying is not, are all self-fitting is customizable, is customization, but not all customization is self-fitting is kind of the piece. So what they say, quote, self-fitting process instills frequency dependent settings through the user interacting with the device or an accessory to the device. Um, so that's what they call it. And they give some really interesting examples. So they say, for example, if you have presets, so if you have like, they, they use the number three, they actually give the number, three presets, um, typically not self-fitting. It has to be more than that in their view. So the FDA's language is that it has to ha allow the user to cause frequency dependent changes based on the user's preference in order to be self-fitting. So that is more than just selecting from a limited set of presets in order to be considered self-fitting. So customization need not entail self-fitting, though self-fitting is a kind of customization. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I got it. I got it. Um, and then there's a labeling piece that goes with this as well. And um, there are some, some, some components here that have to do with education and risk and benefit. Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So what's interesting is that the FDA, from the proposed rule to the final rule, did change the labeling a little bit. 
So they made it, they, their intent was to make it a little bit easier for a lay user to understand. And right. I think it's a really important point to make because if you think about other OTC type things, and I, I think people made this argument in reviewing the proposed rules, essentially, how do you prevent a person from ingesting a whole bottle of NSAID pain relievers that they bought OTC? Well, the answer is labeling. So we're sort of relying on labeling as a key control point. And so in the case of the OTC hearing aids, they, they sort of come up with this operative statement and then they ask, well, how do you know if you have this? So this hearing aid is, is for adults with signs of mild to moderate hearing loss. How do you know if you have this? And keep in mind that this is intended to be self-identified people. So this is a perceived mild to moderate. They didn't budge on that. So there's no audiometric objective criterion. So you have to kind of answer yes or no to the questions. You have trouble hearing speech in noisy places. You find it hard to follow speech in groups. You have trouble hearing on the phone and so on and so forth. There's a few of them. And so that's actually required to be on the label. And it's a, it's a key control point because with regard to the labeling and this pre-market idea, there are a bunch of special controls you have to meet, usability engineering being one of them. So what that mm -hmm. means is that you have to categorize the risk profile in terms of what you have on the package and labeling, and then you have to actually validate it. So you actually have to sit people down, have them unbox this thing and observe them and see if they can actually do it. And the labeling is kind of a key piece to that because it's not just what's on the box, but also what's in the user manual uh, as far as indications for use, risks and warnings, other aspects of the device, like components that might be in it, smartphone compatibility and so on. Yeah, and then there's also, you know, the, the manufacturer's email and, and their address has to be on there. Um, and if I remember right, um, there's also the issue of the ear tip insertion depth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the, the ear tip insertion depth is a really interesting topic because um, previously they kind of said, I think it was anything after the second bend, or it has to be like sort of uh, proximal to the second bend, in other words, like closer to the outside of the body. I think that was really interesting, but they changed that in the final rule to be a fixed depth of 10 millimeters, um, which I think is, is pretty good. It's actually still a little bit deep, in my opinion, but what that'll do is it'll allow... Uh, potentially innovation in this space, specifically with things like ITEs or uh, in-the-ear products or completely in the canal products, in the canal products, um, things that you can kind of grow the, the, the physical fit profile of the device itself. Um, but that 10 millimeters is interesting because not everybody's going to have 10 millimeters of usable ear canal. Um, potentially, you know, like say you had skin cancer or something and they carve out the mastoid bowl. There, there are certain medical indications that have nothing to do with hearing that could compromise that. Um, of course, you might argue that those aren't OTC candidates, but the, the idea is that they've changed from a relative measurement to a fixed measurement, um, which I think is a good thing overall, but it, it really kind of forces you to think about it because now do you have to validate you know, the insertion depth of the product? I mean, perhaps you do. It, it's one of those things where you have to kind of note that and, and perhaps in the labeling, you also have to be careful with how you say to, to put it on and, and what you do. So for example, if there's a detachable tip, probably need to document the pull test results. You know, like there's a physical test to make sure that um, enough force is, is applied such that it'll leave the tips in place. You're not losing stuff in the ear canal. Um, so it's, it's an interesting thing that they've done. Yeah, and again, just to reiterate what we, start, we started out talking about at the beginning here, the idea that uh, these clunky devices will be on the market is not necessarily true. Uh, they've been very, very prescriptive in defining what these devices are going to be and to ensure that the quality is there for the protection of that consumer who's going to be purchasing these without the assistance of a licensed professional. 
You mentioned the manufacturer email and mailing address as a way to communicate with them. What, what another interesting thing is with regard to labeling is they do actually require in the final rule that manufacturers provide summaries of clinical data or trials that have been completed uh, directly to the consumer, which is really interesting because to the extent that, for example, you validate the ear tap depth insertion, or you've looked at a self-fitting or whatever to, to validate the efficacy, you are actually required according to the provisions in the final rule to communicate that to some extent in the labeling and uh, consumer literature, which as we discussed earlier, could have a net benefit to the health literacy piece. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting. So David, before these, these products can come to market, there's a requirement called an, a 510K. And I'm not sure everybody understands what that is. Can you enlighten us on that, please? Sure. So people use the term 510K as sort of a, a colloquialism or a noun, but what it refers to is it's talking about the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act. And it specifically is Section 510K from the FDNC Act. Um, so what it talks about are a variety of special controls. When you have a product that you want to legally market, there are things you have to go through in order to do that. And so what, what's really interesting is not only the 510K requirement itself, but how it interacts with other manufacturers that have products already on the market that they want to include as an OTC product. And so the FDA enumerates several special controls are what they're called. So for example, the OTC category itself, you might consider general controls. So there are things you have to meet, there are standards you have to meet, but there are also special controls. And the FDA enumerated them as electromagnetic compatibility, um, that you do have to evaluate the sufficiency of clinical data in the case of self-fitting, uh, usability engineering, so validating the labeling, people can unbox and put the, the stuff on your ear. And these are all related to standards as well. I mean, usability has a variety of standards you have to do. Um, you have to look at verification and validation. So what that means is verification is, did you make the product right? Validation is, did you make the right product? Uh, so it's it's very much into the FDA parlance. And you also have to do hazard analysis. So all of this is to say that people might think that this will open the door to a glut of poor quality products. My contention would be uh, that that's not exactly true, that these special controls will um, ensure that there's at least a minimum efficacious standard that's being followed for all OTC hearing aids, even if they don't have the self-fitting piece. And, and, and David, just for, for the audience's uh, uh, knowledge, how long does this process usually take? It's not a week. I mean, I'm assuming it takes several months in order for this process to take place. I mean, yeah. So when you look at what's required in terms of generating a 510K, I mean, there's a lot to it. I mean, you have to make a lot of uh, documents and requirements. And perhaps people who are watching this program have seen like the decision summaries from some of those products that have come out on the market. That's just a small snippet of what's in the 510K. You have to provide detailed test reports on every single category and aspect of the device. And what the FDA is trying to do through the 510K program is make a determination of substantial equivalence. So in other words, um, that you, you have to say, is the product that we're intending to market, we select a predicate, is it substantially equivalent to that predicate or not? So, and what that means is, you know, do you get similar outcomes or it's, it's really nebulous, like you have to define that. And that's where people are designing clinical trials and they're doing a lot of research on this in, in order to get 510K marketing clearance. It's, uh, it's a pretty robust process. And, you know, to your 
question about how long is it going to take? I mean, a lot of companies have teams of people, large teams in various different disciplines. I mean, it takes months to do this kind of thing. And I mean, this is many, many people's full-time job just to do this constituent components of the 510k. So it's quite something actually to go about this. Yeah. Again, just to reiterate, again, these products are not are not just being thrown out on the market. There's there's a, there's a basis behind them, and there's research that has to prove uh, their worth uh, for for consumer safety. So, so David, now let's move, let's turn our attention a little bit to scope. So, you know, we've talked a little bit about quality control. We've talked about the pre market components, and now we've got scope. So, can you fit these on anybody? So the question is that you asked, the answer is no, you cannot fit these on anybody. Uh, so it's specifically meant for adults who are age 18 and older. So when it, when you look at the redefinition of the prescription category, um, it's really those people who are moderately severe or greater or children. They are not OTC candidates. It's really just adults greater than or equal to 18 years of age with self-perceived mild to moderate hearing loss. And that's a really key point that there were a lot of comments contending, you know, what is self-perceived? Should there be some sort of an audiologic objective criterion? FDA seemed to stand quite firm on that and say, nope, it has to be self-identified, self-perceived, mild to moderate. So you ask the person, do you have mild to moderate hearing loss? They, they say yes. If they say no, well, they're not a candidate, right? They, but if they say yes, then they're a candidate. And it differs from both PSAPs and the prescriptive category, which are really important outcomes of all this, because what, what's really interesting in the final rule is that PSAPs are not devices in according to the final rule. They are not considered okay. devices. So, so the FDA clarifies that they're for normal hearing individuals for situational listening. And so perhaps the implication is like signal to noise ratio improvement, but clearly not devices and their intended uses for normal hearing people. Likewise, the prescriptive category is meant for people whose either confirmed audiologic criterion are moderately severe or greater, or they simply are not self-perceived mild to moderate hearing loss, uh, they would consider themselves greater than that. Um, and so what's really interesting is that the FDA, in fact, did refuse to define categorical criteria for the degree of hearing loss. Yeah, and I think that's an important point. We're going to jump into that in just a minute here. You know, I think the other piece that's really, really interesting here is the fact that for the OTC devices, the FDA is recommending that a provider does not have to be involved in that process. And so how does that work? I mean, is, is, is that a risk? What, what are we looking at here? Yeah. So in a sense, it's sort of like, and I know there have been interviews lately where people have said, you know, this could help 90% of people or whatever. Well, I would kind of step, take a step back and look at analogous to like a physician's best practice. So if you look at the general practice model for a physician, they'll say, generally, it's not the best practice to just give somebody a drug and send them on their way, that there has to be this follow-up care, this aftercare, in addition to the, the medication that they're providing. OTC hearing aids perhaps are similar in that sense, that yes, you will allow people to get these products uh, in their hands. So they'll be able to buy them at pharmacies and drugstores and whatever. It's not necessary to see a licensed professional. But in my opinion, these devices will only be effective with the involvement of a licensed professional or at least some sort of a hyper care model or ecosystem of care. You know, it maybe is not a licensed professional, but maybe a licensed professional has come up with 
a best practices scheme that they've trained others on, for example, audiology assistance or something like that. Um, so they've, they've been very clear. It's not required to have a licensed professional. And in fact, at the state level, the FDA has declared their intent that anything that uh, frustrates or interferes with the intent of the OTC rule, they, they won't allow. So you're not allowed to say you have to have a license to dispense OTC hearing aids. You can volunteer that. You can say, I have a licensed professional and I also sell OTC hearing aids. You are allowed to do that, but you're not allowed to have a requirement for a license in order to sell OTC hearing aids. So I think it's really less, in my opinion, about selling the device. And it's more about this on-ramp to audiology best practices as part of a care approach. And, and you might liken it to prescription drugs where the OTC device will really be effective when paired with audiology best practices. Without that, you might see marginal benefit, which could fulfill the intent of the OTC final rule, but certainly it won't be as good as it could be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about perspectives here in just a minute. Uh, you know, two other pieces here um, uh, quickly. There was some discussion about output and gain. Um, you know, between the the proposal and and what actually came out, can you enlighten us on that? Yeah, so there was a lot of debate about output and gain, um, and you know, in, briefly in the proposed rule, they they had a provision where it was I think 115 dB SPL, and that was peak OSPL 90. Really important distinction because uh, what that means is it means the maximum output of the hearing aid as measured in a 2cc coupler with a 90 dB pure tone sweep. So it was not a complex signal, for example, where you've got upward spread of masking. In the product, we tend to call it upward spread of distortion. It's sort of analogous to that biological phenomenon, uh, maybe a little bit cheeky, but, but they said is if it was 115 dB SPL, Pico SPL 90, if it did not have input control compression and a volume control, and then they would allow you to go to 120 dB SPL if you had both. Well. In the final rule, they've decided, well, we're going to require volume control on everybody. So that's different. But what they've done is they, they kind of kept this idea that there was a, a classification difference, that if you had something that was totally linear, um, you could go up to 111 in the final rule. Um, and they reference sort of this NIOSH 98 criterion. And then they'll allow, of course, to go to 117 if the circuit's capable of input controlled compression. And what that means is that on the basis of audio input alone, the compressor can activate and modify loudness growth, loudness being the perceptual correlate of intensity um, in the hearing aid itself. And so the reasoning that the FDA gave was that they, they called it a 3 dB exchange rule. So that's where they got from 120 to 117. In other words, their reasoning in the proposed rule was they, that you would get you know 30 seconds or whatever to self-identify if there was a hazardous situation and be able to remove the hearing aid. By reducing that maximum output by 3 dB, the FDA believes that doubles the non-hazardous exposure time that a user can have. But they declined to have a gain requirement. So their idea was that they were going to define the ceiling as safety. In other words, the total peak output of the hearing aid, they're going to call that safety. So when you have your Pico SPL90 in a coupler, hearing aid can't get louder than that. Now, realistically, hearing aids are not going to perform at that level for extended periods unless you're already in a hazardous situation without the hearing aid. I mean, that's just a reality because what the idea was, as FDA points out, is this it, it speaks to the idea of headroom, that you have some amount of residual uh, output in the hearing aid that you're not using, um, but that you can it accommodates for peaks in the signal. 
So it would allow you to have, you know, um, more something that in the device represents the biological sense of hearing more closely, because that's what we're doing with the medical device. We're uh, with the hearing aid medical devices. We're managing loudness growth in the impaired ear. And so it allows you to kind of represent that a little bit better. But what they said is for the gain requirement, they weren't going to require that because they want to allow people to have more audibility or more gain for low level inputs. And we know kind of from the market track data that that's a really important indicator for first time user acceptance of a hearing aid is audibility for low level inputs specifically. Um, so it's, it's interesting that they chose to do that. That's what they did. Um, and that's going to be now the, what we have to do in the final rule. Yeah, and I, I found that this, this particular piece really, really uh, important because uh, sound quality is the most important attribute for listener use. Audibility is certainly important, don't get me wrong, but the sound quality uh, is the most important piece. And if it doesn't sound good, people are less likely to use their devices, which is what the market track survey, as you pointed out, uh, references. So I think that's a really important piece. Um, and then, David, there's the whole distribution piece where OTC device, uh, OTC hearing aids do not have a preemption, nor does it provide exemptions for state or local requirements. And then consumer protections are not preempted. What does that mean? Well, um, you know, this is potentially a, a little bit of a contentious issue coming out of the final rule that what they've done is they've reclassified all hearing aids because what they did is they removed this 21 Code of Federal Regulations 801.420, and they repealed 801.421, and they're going to replace that with the 801.422. So what that means is they removed uh, one of the regulations that was going to provide that preemption. Uh, and so what that does is it sort of becomes a situation at the state level where previously unenforced rules could now be enforced. And so what, what it allows states to do, for example, is to create what they believe are consumer protections um, around OTC hearing aids. But for the FDA was very clear in the final rule that the states are not going to be allowed to do things that frustrate the intent of the OTC regulation. So, for example, states could not make a requirement to be licensed uh, to do OTC dispensing. But it, it does set up a really interesting circumstance where every state's going to kind of have to figure this out. And... What I have, I'm very optimistic about this because we have great professional organizations in our field, and I would look to them and their leadership uh, for guidance as we proceed down this new and uncharted path in order to engineer the best outcome for both consumers and providers. Yeah, and I think it'll be interesting as as these these states develop and enforce. Uh, these particular uh, uh, requirements at the at the state level, and we'll have to have a discussion about that as as they start to uh, roll those things out. Because uh, some states are are in sunset laws now, and some states will be there in a in a, in a short period of time. So uh, we'll have to get you back on, David, as as those things to start to evolve. The last thing that that I have here with respect to the legislative framework is this thing called the prescriptive category that we talked about, where the licensed professional gets now to to participate in a more traditional way, if you will. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that, that kind of dovetails from the previous point we were making, because it sort of sets up a, a situation at every state level in terms of defining what's a prescription, um, what's a dispenser. You know, so it, it's going to really take the cooperation and involvement of all 
three parties, licensed dispensers, audiologists as dispensers of hearing aids, and of course, physicians as people who prescribe things. Uh, so it's going to really set up some interesting uh, resolutions in the, in the months ahead. I'm optimistic that audiologists will continue to be recognized as leaders in this field. Um, but it does, set, it does set up a little bit of a potential conflict there that I'm optimistic the professional organizations can help us navigate. Yeah, yeah, I 100% agree with that. And then the second part under this prescriptive category, uh, if you'll just highlight this a little bit, is we talked about the quality control under the OTC categories. What is now the prescriptive quality control component? Yeah, so that, that's a really interesting question. And the answer to that is it comes back to the bread and butter uh, ANSI ASA S322. So it's it kind of gets back to what sometimes is called GMP or good manufacturing practices. Um, it, it's really going to set up a focus. You know, we kind of said that last time I was on the program about a focus on the prescriptive side. And it's really going to get into the electroacoustic performance criteria um, right now. And I think this is an interesting point that the FDA made is they're actually referencing very specific versions of the standards. So on the prescription side, they are pointing to the ANSI ASA S322 2014 revision, which was reaffirmed in 2020. Um, we're currently working on the standards group uh, on a new revision of that with a key outcome goal to be harmonizing with our European colleagues. So on the prescription side, you, you might look at manufacturers and, and typically the idea is you wanna test apart once and be able to sell it worldwide. So on the standards development side, it's a, harmonization is a really important goal. And so what's really interesting is that on the European side, they've actually, um, they're deprecating IEC 60118 part seven, and they're putting all those electroacoustic tests in IEC 60118 part zero. So they've, mm -hmm. they've kind of rearranged things. And so there is a little bit of a project that we'll need to do on the standard side as we get to a new revision of ANSI ASA S322, where we incorporate a lot of those new measures that our European colleagues have developed and verified. Um, and I'm really excited about that because it, it adds a lot of new things about uh, wireless testing, um, things like companion microphone signal to noise ratio. There will be new ways to test that. And we're always looking at new standards. You know, there are new ways to standardize things. So for example, uh, a colleague of mine named Randy Wagner, who's over at the NIST, uh, he's he's leading a, a subcommittee on the development of feedback canceling. So it's like a standard for the detection, presence, or absence of feedback in a hearing aid. And what's really interesting about that is you can imagine situations where a lot of manufacturers have very different ways to go about implementing their algorithms. But somehow in the standards methods, we have to find a way to find common ground. And what's interesting about that is as users enter the OTC space, it's inevitable that at least some, perhaps many, will end up in the prescription space. And so we want to make sure that as there's a high quality requirement on the OTC side, that we maintain that on the prescription side as well. So in theory, one of the net outcomes of this OTC rule is you'll actually get higher quality prescription hearing aids as well. well I think that's a really important point that you just made. And then the last thing I have here, David, under the prescriptive category is distribution. So the preemption was rescinded. What does that mean? Yeah, so the, it, it kind of gets into this idea of interstate commerce. So the for the prescription category, because they removed 801.420, it now kind of gets into the state level requirement. So it ends up being something where 
um, it's controlled more or less at the state licensure level through that credential. So the preemption, in other words, the federal preemption was rescinded because the FDA is sort of saying, well, we want to just wash our hands of this and the states are going to kind of have to figure that out. So in terms of the distribution, that's what we're kind of talking about with who's allowed to dispense and in what conditions. So, for example, in the final rule, they, they pointed out Rhode Island. Uh, I think it's like New York and Rhode Island or something have requirements for a physician waiver. Um, and I would encourage people to read Carl Strom's piece on Hearing Tracker, where he talks about the history, you know, because then it, we don't have to get into the timeline here, but it, it goes all the way back to 1977. So there are these old laws that are kind of now resurrected as an outcome of the OTC legislation. Yeah, and we'll make that available for folks uh, so that they can access that. So, David, we're now down to perspectives. What does this mean for consumers and what does it mean for our peers, our provider peers? Yeah, oh, that, so that's a really interesting conversation. So you might categorize it in terms of benefits and risks. Um, so there have been a lot of pieces out there um, in, in various print media and other media. Um, but for consumers... You know, I, I think a lot of people have pointed out certain risks that there is perhaps a lack of understanding of their condition. Um, they might be confused about product quality, um, unsure of next steps, you know, once they engage with OTC hearing aids. But there are potential benefits insofar as they could have a means to do what some have called comparison shopping. Um, not so much shopping in the sense that you're picking out a, a car or a handbag, but comparison shopping in terms of understanding the effect of various features and how they relate to perception. I think it's an important piece because if, the idea is if you go to a bunch of different audiologists, you may get a bunch of different fittings because everybody's making decisions, but it allows users sort of that health literacy improvement. And that's what I kind of mean when I say comparison shopping. It's sort of a metaphor more or less for the idea that you're linking your perception with something that we now are able to develop a common lexicon around. Um, they also benefit from long-term reduced prices due to competition. So we talk about access and affordability. Well, the reality is, and I think it's true that perhaps these won't be cheap hearing aids and they probably won't reduce the price in the short term, but long-term due to competitive market pressures, there probably will be some downward pressure on price. And that would benefit consumers in this space purchasing OTC hearing aids. And of course, as far as the access piece, they'll be available more places. I think that's a really important piece for consumers, especially those who live in rural environments or areas where audiology best practices care isn't as available as we might like it to be, um, that they'll at least be able to get something, you know, whether it's from a fleet farm or uh, Menards or hardware store or whatever, um, they might be able to find something where they might not otherwise be able to find it. I was just going to add, you know, you brought up this piece at the very, very beginning where we don't have enough providers. And so, you know, this is one way to to uh, allow individuals who need our, our help or need these, these devices in order to be able to function on a day-to-day -day, uh, um, meaningful way uh, to move forward and, 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 you know, it would reduce some of their um, comorbidity issues that they face with social isolation, depression, anxiety, and so forth and so on. So the accessibility piece, I think, is a really, really critical point, given the fact that we can't supply everybody that's in the marketplace. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think a lot of that literature is still emerging now with relation to it, its hearing aids availability's interaction with cognitive decline in advanced cognitive processes. And I think it's just now people are starting to accept the idea where um, social connectedness as a marker of public health, you know, when, when you've got people who get isolated into advancing age, 
um, you do see, and we're, we're starting to get that literature now and establish this, that there are more issues with cognitive decline and cognitive function uh, that are sort of directly proportionate to one's degree of social isolation. And hearing aids, potentially OTC hearing aids, have the opportunity to ameliorate at least some of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and again, David, I apologize for cutting you off. I, I just thought we would add that in there because I think that's a really, really critical piece to this whole component. And then for providers, I think there's huge opportunity here. And, uh, you know, some people have looked at this uh, with, with, a, with a sour face, um, and, and I can certainly understand that because it's going to uh, it's going to impact folks from a uh, a business standpoint in in various ways. But it's also an opportunity, and I think uh, people are just going to have to rethink their business models and the way that the consumer now is going to not only be aware of the products and services that are available, but also in the way that they view you as a professional, uh, you know, in this ecosystem that we keep talking about towards better hearing health. Well, that's absolutely right. And and that's where I see, you know, one of the biggest benefits for the provider is this OTC's ability to provide an on-ramp to best practices audiology care is, you know, I firmly believe that, that, you know, when you look at OTC as part of a, a holistic healthcare journey, there's no better equipped profession than audiology to provide that best practices ongoing high touch care that we know is going to be so critical to success. I also think that there's a huge opportunity for providers to increase their education, like their materials, the awareness, the health literacy of those we serve, either through counseling or print materials, what have you. And I also think that it allows audiologists a historic and unprecedented opportunity to decouple our services and the value we provide from you know, salespeople of devices. And I think what that will do is increase the value of our profession and also our independence and autonomy. Yeah, David, I think those last points that you make are, are really, really critical to our future. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm looking forward to having reviewed this conversation a number of years down the road to see we were here and this is where we are now and this is where we're headed. So kind of looking at that trajectory. And David, you're always so insightful with your comments and, and uh, always so gracious with your time. So Really appreciate you coming on to the show, sharing this information with our, our viewers. And uh, we look forward to having you on again at some point uh, in the near future. Thank you very much, Amin. It's great to be with you.